Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. Today, we are going through a few Tour de France news items, as well as talking about Ineos' prospects based on what we saw at the Tour de Suisse. Remco Evenepoel, what's going on? Is he a GC rider or is he not? Is Tadej Pogacar unstoppable? What can Yumbo do? Why is FEJ leaving Arno de Mar home and taking Tio Pino to the Tour de France? But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition comes out once a week. There's a paid edition comes out daily during Grand Tour. So with the tour coming up, that could be a good deal. Make sure to check it out at beyondthepeloton.substack.com if you're interested. All right, a uh, big piece of news today is Greg Van Avermaet is not going to the Tour de France. His AG2R team is leaving him at home, um, presumably to consolidate support behind Ben O'Connor. We saw O'Connor was the only rider to get within like smelling distance of the Yumbo Visma duo of Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vindegaard at the Crypturium du Dauphiné. I, yeah, I was impressed by it. Apparently his team was impressed by it. They probably think he can podium. I think he can podium at the tour. Um, you got to go for it if you're them. This is still a little shocking. I mean, Greg is their superstar, or at least was until recently. Now, he had a decent spring. You're not great. Some like top 20s at, at Monuments. He stunk it up at the Dauphiné. This is like a great example of how the Dauphiné can be important, even if it's not directly correlated to like the GC winner of the tour anymore. Um, he just was not good and specifically couldn't climb well. Um, and that's what the team said. They didn't think his climbing was up to snuff to support O'Connor. And the thing I'm most curious about is there's no doubt in my mind that he's not a good enough climber at 37 to support O'Connor, O'Connor, but you know, in the olden days, even half a decade ago, five years ago, you know, you could take someone like Greg and he could probably get into a breakaway and maybe win a stage on a, on a transition day. This is probably a sign that, you know, teams are recognizing those days are going away. You know, every day is so hard. Like you have to be like the world champion level to even smell a stage one at the tour. So, you know, in, in that respect, this is really interesting to me that AG2R is essentially admitting, you know, we don't think you're good enough to even win a stage. And we saw in 2020, he was incredibly fit. He got a few top fives, but didn't win a stage. You know, and the team is probably correctly deducing, well, at 37, you're probably not going to be better than you were at 35, and you couldn't win a stage at 35. So why would we take you? Um, this stands in stark contrast to 37-year-old Chris Froome, um, whose Israel team is taking him. Very excited to take him to the tour. Um, I saw a lot of people being like, this is so amazing. He can come back from his injury to start the tour again. It's like, um, does anyone not realize he raced the Tour de France last year? He raced and finished the tour. Um, I, I don't think very many people remember that. He was, not, he was very aggressively not good. But to his credit, he did finish. You know, I think he'll be slightly better this year. I think he'll probably finish, and I think that's probably the end of that story. I don't think he's going to be competing for for stage wins or, or the GC at all. So, but it, it does this tells you how different those teams' situations are. That AG2R is in a position to tell its thirty seven year old former superstar to go kick rocks, basically. And Israel has such a lack of options and is so financially leveraged on Froome. They're paying him five million euros a year. Um, they can't afford to tell him that they, they can't take them. They don't have a spot for them. And, and frankly, they might not have like a writer on the roster that would fill this roster spot better than Chris Froome. So this just shows us how different those two teams are at the moment. And also shows you why, why it's really important to always be building up that like younger talent base. I mean, Ben O'Connor was, was nothing, you know, they, 
AG Tour basically got him for free when uh, when his team Dimension Data folded at the end of I believe that's end of 2020. He was unemployed, came over to AG2R, and now he's like a superstar for them, or he's their superstar. So shows you why it's really important. And Israel's very, very bad at this. Uh, they never seem to be discovering talent. They're kind of always going after riders who are past their peak. They're paying people for past performance. It's like exactly how you wouldn't want to run a team. Apparently, Wout Van Aert hurt his knee at his Yumbo Visma training camp. I'm officially concerned. I was very excited to watch him go for green. Um, and to support Primoz and, Yom, and Jonas in the GC, who knows? You know, who knows what the heck's going on here? Is this a smokescreen? Is he really hurt? What's going on? Is he going to be okay by next week? The race starts, I believe, a week from today. Um, I don't know. We don't know. But knee injuries are tough. If this is real, like if he really did hurt his knee, yeah, this could be a bit of a, a like a death blow to the green jersey competition before it starts. Um, if he's not at 100%, you have to imagine Matthew Vanderpool, he could run away with this thing. Um, it might not be a competition. So it was a bummer to see that. And then another piece of Tour de France selection news, which really stuck out to me, was Simon Yates being left off the Bike Exchange Tour squad. This was really shocking. I mean, he's their best rider by far, by a mile. You know, maybe could have ridden to a top five overall, won a mountain stage, um, which is big for a team. And then for them to just kind of knowingly chuck that in the bin, they're going with like kind of a dual sprinter strategy of Dylan Gronovegan and Michael Matthews. Um, you have to imagine this is points related to them just needing to get as many points as possible to maximize their chances of making the World Tour in 2023 and beyond. And there, I, I'd imagine the strategy now is to send Simon Yates to the Vuelta, try to win the overall there, or at least podium, um, get more points that way. Because if they can maximize their points profile, if Gronovegan and Matthew win, I don't know, let's just say a stage. 1.5 stages each, and then Yates gets third at the Vuelta and wins three stages. That's going to be much better for them than Yates getting sixth at the Tour, not being able to win a mountain stage. Gronovagan doesn't have the supporting needs in the sprints and doesn't win a stage. So this is like the best move from a points perspective, but it is a bit shocking to see the points race so drastically changing a Tour start list and then you know, kind of unfortunately leaving a really talented mountain rider at home and not in the race to shake things up. This is really going to help Pogacar, frankly, because because the fewer riders there are that are really elite on the climbs, the easier it is going to be for his UAE team to control the race. Um, this is especially a blow for you know for anyone that's not Pogacar, probably Roglic, because someone needs someone to sh someone needs something to shake things up in the mountains if they want to beat Pogacar. And without Yates, there's a lot less firepower and a lot fewer chances for that to happen. So let's talk about Tour de Switzerland. P pretty boring race, if, if I'm being completely honest with you. Um, won by Garrett Thomas overall. He, he looked impressive. He was good. But let's just not forget that Alexander Vlasov was the strongest rider in this race and then dropped out due to COVID. Um, that puts a little bit of a damper on what we saw there. He beat Sergio Higuita, who finished second from Bora Hansgro by a big margin, a minute and 12 seconds, which is, a, that's a huge margin for a week-long stage race, uh, especially since we're seeing a lot of Grand Tours decided by less than that. Jakob Fulsang was third, a minute and 16 seconds back. A pretty good ride from Jakob. I mean, I, I'm continually impressed by him. I think he gets a lot of expectations to be a GC rider, but, you know, he's, he, if we're being honest, he's 37 years old. I, I mean... He's not going, he's not getting any better. He's won a lot of one one week races in his career. You know, he's never going to be a, a Grand Tour GC threat. I think that's 
that's kind of established at this point. But yeah, you know, for whatever reason, he gets a lot of expectations to be like a Tour de France contender. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because he's like an engaging English-speaking writer, and not native English, but he speaks very good English, so he just gets a lot of media attention. But you know, he, he looked really good. Uh, like he's a, he's kind of like a skilled one-day racer who can just kind of figure out how to win one-week stage races when he has to. You know, when we saw in the time trial, he's just not a talented time trialist, at least at an elite, elite level. He just sits, his position isn't naturally that arrow on a bike, which really hurts you, especially when you're going up against riders like Garrett Thomas, who is incredibly arrow, especially with his new Ineos, or his new Pinarello setup. They had like the camouflage paint on there trying to hide the new TT bike. You know, and I'll say this about TT bikes, a lot gets made of this. I mean, a lot. Um, and definitely your front end setup, like your bars, like the 3D printed bars are, are hugely, hugely important. You know, but really the main thing is how you can contort your body on the bike. You know, can you get tucked down and still put out massive watts? That's what decides if you're a good time trialist or not. And, you know, the bikes kind of matter, but not really. If you think about how big a human body is and how much they're taking up on a bike, you know, how, how much space they're taking up out of the air versus two triangles, which is the frame, the body is so much more important. I just feel like people really overlook the importance of actually getting into an aerodynamic position versus your bike being like slippery or fast, especially your frame, you know, really outside of your front end and your wheels. It's minimal, very minimal. And you don't want, you want to hide the cables, but everyone's doing that. You know, I, I wouldn't get too caught up in like how slippery each frame is. I just think that's completely, you know, it's not irrelevant, but it's a small piece of the of the aerodynamic puzzle. You know, and even though Sergio Higuita, speaking of aerodynamic, not an aerodynamic rider, um, got really blown out of the water in this final time trial, wasn't really close. I was impressed by his ride, and I think he's getting better after he left EF last year and got and went over to Bora for this season. You know, so so far this year, he's won Volta Catalunya and finished second Tour de Suisse. Both are his two best uh, Grand Tour. Sorry. Both are his two best GC finishes in his career, so that's that's really good. I mean, Bora is I've I've just continued to be impressed by their program. Obviously, they won the Giro d'Italia with Jai Henley, but outside of Henley, I mean, they just have so many really really good riders. I mean, Vlasov, who probably wins this race if he finishes, and then that's not even mentioning Emmanuel Bookman, who's finished fourth at the Tour before, and then Max Schachmann, who I kind of always think should be a GC rider, but. Um, after 2020, where I thought he was kind of on the precipice of of winning one of these or some of these one week races, um, I mean he did win Perry Nice, I guess twice, 2020 and 2021, um, has kind of regressed a little bit. I mean he, he had some really bad luck with injuries and um, seems to always be getting sick at the wrong time, so that could explain why he's struggling. But his team is just incredibly deep, and it's it's not just deep. Like Ineos is deep, but they always have a hard time you know, living up to expectations or they're so deep that people want to leave because they can't get a chance. But Bora just seems, I mean, the fact that they just won the Giro with Jai Henley, who's, you know, before the season was probably not one of their featured GC riders, is really impressive. Just speaks to like the performance setup they have going on behind the scenes there. But to go back to Garrett Thomas for a second with this win, um, you know, you know, as far as Watts, I, as I said last week, take all this with a grain of salt, but basically he's doing like 6.1 Watts per kilos for 30 minutes on a lot of these climbs, which shows us that he's, he's very fit. What it doesn't show us though is, you know, is he, is this as good as he's going to be all year? 
you know, if it is, that's not a good sign. You know, I, I bet Tadej Pogacar, he didn't really do any long, super long sustained climbs Tour of Slovenia, but it, let's say he did, he'd probably be doing about the same watt. So it'd be dangerous to then say, well, I mean, it's a toss up. Either of these guys could win the tour. Well, if Pogacar is on an upward progression and is still building versus Thomas, who, you know, maybe this is as good as he's going to be all year, that's not good. You know, you need to be better in the third week of the tour than you are right now. You know, you don't want to peak before you get to the Tour de France, in short. And while he looked very good coming out of this, you know, especially his time trial, I, I was really impressed with just finished, I think, three seconds behind Rimko Evenepoel, who won the stage. To be climbing that well and then also time trailing that well, you know, t- means tells me that Thomas is on really, really good form. Uh, but he did win the Tour of Romedy last year. Uh, got third at the Dauphiné. I think he crashed on the final day and stage and still got third. And then just couldn't do anything in Grand Tours. So we, we've seen this before with Thomas. You know, since he won that Tour de France in 2018, he you know he got second in 2019, but he was clearly not as fit as he was in 18. And then his you know, in my opinion, looked worse every year since then. It's just a little bit difficult for me to believe a 36-year-old will be able to contest the tour, especially if Roglic and Pogacar don't get sick or crash and can stay in the Tour de France. He's just not as good on the climbs. Um, and you know, a lot of times, not as good in the time trial. So not a good combination there. And the, the opening week of this tour is, is really, really hard. I'll talk about that more in depth next week. But, you know, this is Garrett Thomas has DNF'd half of his Grand Tours since, I believe, 2017, mainly due to the crashes. So the fact that we have an incredibly difficult, likely crash-heavy opening week doesn't bode in- incredibly well for him. You know, I-, I wouldn't be shocked if he goes down before we even leave Denmark on, on the opening Sunday. So then that, that kind of brings us to like, what is Ineos going to do here? You know, it's a really, really expensive team, like almost 60 million US dollars a year. You know, maybe the next most expensive team is like 30 million. So their budget is probably about twice as big as the next biggest budgeted team. They should be, you know, at least competing for the Tour de France title. You know, if you're the most expensive team, you should probably be winning or at least competing in competing for a win at the biggest race of the year. You know, you know, they had Adam Yates. It's a little unclear to me why Richard Carapaz isn't coming. He got third at this race last year, the tour last year, and then they had him go all out for this year or this year, which he didn't win, you know, and that's always a risk. Maybe they were thinking, well, we'll just bag a Grand Tour win early and then the pressure's off. I don't know, because the risk is you always don't win, which is exactly what happened if Richard Carapaz is going to this tour. He has a longer time to recover from his extreme lack of form at the beginning of the year. You know, maybe he can podium again. You know, that's not nothing. Um, you know, perhaps they thought Adam Yates could be a good podium option. He did look incredibly fit at Suisse before he got sick with COVID and had to drop out. I'd imagine now he can't race though, but you know, an important thing to note about Adam Yates is he's never podiumed at a Grand Tour in his life before and he's almost 30. So that's not a great track record of success. That doesn't make me feel super confident. You know, I thought Danny Martinez would be you know, he, I thought he, I, I think, still think he's one of the most talented riders of that team. He came to Suisse looking quite bad. You know, he, he was dropped on the opening stage, which wasn't, it was difficult, but it wasn't a GC day. Um, he did recover by the end of the race. He was doing a lot of work for Thomas by the end. I always get a little bit um, hesitant to say, oh, someone's doing great work on the climbs. They're fit because, you know, when you watch, if you watch this closely, like he's pulling off with 2K to go. So, yeah, a lot of people can look good as long as they're 
you know, getting dropped essentially with two kilometers left on the climb. If Danny Martinez was riding for himself and getting dropped with 2K left, you wouldn't say, oh, but he looks so good. He was on the front for a while. So we still don't really know where he is. He did have a great final time trial. I think he finished fourth on the stage. Um, just 28 seconds behind the winner, Remco Evenepoel. So that's 25 seconds behind Thomas. You know, I, I don't know if I've ever seen him time trial that well. And that's been a, a big missing thing from his arsenal as far as Grand Tour contention goes. So, you know, that, that's something to keep an eye on. I would, and, and Thomas winning Suisse and looking so good is like the best thing to ever happen to Danny Martinez. That means he can go into the tour completely under the radar. No one's going to ask him any questions or at least significant question interest about him potentially winning the overall. And at least in theory, he'll just get to glide through these opening stages. And, you know, if he can get to the second, halfway through the second week and he's still in GC contention, that's a good place for Danny Martinez to be in. You know, he's a, he's a very good climber when he's fit. And as we saw, he can time trial, you know, pretty well now when he has to. So um, I wouldn't be shocked if, if Martinez ends up being Ineos' leader after Thomas has his, um, his crash problems, assuming he has some sort of problem and, it, and it isn't able to stay in contention. If he is able to stay in contention, that's going to be super interesting as well, because then we'll have Martinez versus Thomas. Um, Ineos really has not been good at picking leaders lately, um, really ever since 2018 when they had both Thomas and Froome on the podium at the tour. They had a double podium the next year with Bernal and Thomas. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know why they, maybe they just think, well, why pick one when you can have two because one could crash, but it doesn't actually end up working out that way. It seems like last year with Carapaz, you know, maybe Carapaz is never going to win that race, but it's, it seemed like they could never really consolidate behind him. And, and even when they were working for him, they were really just working for Teddy Pogacar. They were riding on the front and letting Pogacar get a free ride to the finish as opposed to, you know, really racing aggressively and trying to split things up early and then put Carapaz in, into a position to succeed. So yeah, it's a little weird to me. They're, they're like, just cannot pick leaders. Like they, they really, it's like painful for them to do it. So if they, if both Thomas and Martinez can avoid trouble and get into the second and the third week high up in the GC, that's going to be fascinating to watch. I saw some, you know, talk of like, oh, did they just go for stage wins? There's no way a team of this budget and this status can be going for stage wins at the tour. Like they have to at least put on airs that they're going for the GC. Um, that that's not something that's not an acceptable outcome for them to go in and chase stage wins. You can do that with a budget of 10 million euros a year. You don't need 60 million euros a year to target stage wins at the Tour de France. And even if they wanted to do that, they don't have a great roster for that. Um, like even Tom, Garrett Thomas, you think, you know, great rider, going to be hard for him to win a stage. He'd probably have to win it solo. You know, they don't have a, a lot of like the explosive type riders you'd need to contest the stage. So um, I, don't, I don't see that happening unless the wheels totally fall off like 2020 and then they get um, Kivkowski and Carapaz up the road and just kind of have like GC level riders basically riding solo on on difficult hilly or mountain stages outside of that i i see them pretty pretty committed to at least trying to put put a good foot forward here for the gc and an another interesting thing about suisse was remco evenepoel he won that final time trial looked fantastic in the time trial and and this almost complicated the narrative because heading into the race he was the odds-on favorite to win the overall people love this guy as a GC contender. He's like a internet fanboy favorite. And because on paper, he looks like he should be a great GC rider and he wins a lot of lower level one day, one week races. Um, but something that he's not 
proven to be good at is long alpine climbs, which befuddles people because he's so relatively light. We know he must have decent sustained power because he's such a good time trialist, as we saw in the final time trial at Tour de Switzerland. Um, and so this should make him a very good climber. Um, and I, he's going to the Vuelta España this year. I think he's like already one of the favorites to win. But you know, we've never seen him do well at a stage race that has significant climbs in it. You know, he he looked great at the Giro d'Italia last year until they got to the the higher mountains, and then he dropped out of the race. You know, at the Tour of the Basque Country this year, he was just not quite good enough in the climbs. He got dropped and lost the race overall. So um, there definitely seems to be an issue with him and longer climbs and in, in stage races with longer, harder climbs. You know, I've seen a lot of watts per kilo like calculation sheets online that his he he can be good on climbs. So at the Tour of Norway, he had like one of the best estimated watts per kilo performances of the year. And a lot of people were just running with this and saying like, wow, well, this is the next like great Grand Tour rider. Move over, Tadej Pogacar. You're not the best anymore. You know, and I think this is like you're, people are really missing the nuance and complexity of the sport. I mean, being a great 20 minute, 30 minute climber on one climb you know, is fantastic, but that's not how stage races are won. You know, they're very complex races there. And especially on big mountain stages. You know, the, the load is is very different, especially if you're doing a ton of climbs versus even if it's hard racing up to a climb like it was at Norway. You know, Rimko is a very aero rider. He can tuck in. He's not using a ton of energy. And he's so small when he's in the pack, you know, he's basically hitting these climbs fresh, even if the stage has been hard up to that point, if it's flat. But in like an alpine race, like the Tour of Switzerland, you know, it's taking a toll on these on these climbs before the final climb. You know, and perhaps he's just not great at those multiple climbs in a day or those multiple long sustained efforts in a day, you know, which is which would explain why he's such a good time trialist, because you just need one 30 minute, maybe 45, 50 minute effort. Um, same thing with the climbing where he can pop off a great 20, 30 minute single effort climb. But when you get to the the higher mountains, the the days with multiple climbs, it's just not quite the same. And Another thing to point out is, you know, he was like shirtless uh, after the final stage and you know, he's an athletic looking guy. He's, he's very small, like he's not a big guy, but he definitely looks like he looks like a good, like a good athlete or like a healthy person. And if you notice a lot of the GC contenders do not look healthy, you know, maybe Pogacar is a little different. He, he just kind of seems to naturally have like a smaller physique, but he never looks that emaciated yet. He is an amazing climber and time trialist. In Grand Tours, um, but like Primus Roglic, when he's fit, he looks emaciated. Same thing with Garen Thomas. I mean, even at the Tour of Switzerland, he looked really, really. They look sick, like they do not look healthy. Um, Evanipol looks like a good athlete, like a solid person, and perhaps he's just not emaciated enough to be competing in these long, sustained climbs. And to do so, he'd have to lose even more weight. You know, he's already one of the light, lightest riders in the peloton. He'd have to get even lighter to be able to compete. And Grand Tours, you know, and that can be unappealing for people. We've seen riders like Julian Alaphilippe, similar rider, actually, maybe, you know, not as good as a steady state rider, better sprinter, like a better, more explosive, better at more explosive efforts. Um, but, you know, he's made a career out of like winning one, one day races, um, poaching stages, things like that. And then occasionally having a good GC ride, like we saw at the 2019 Tour de France. Um, and, and you can have a fine career doing that. And perhaps that's what Remco is. And we just need to like get used to the fact that he's not going to be a Grand Tour winner or contender. So 
Um, just I felt like that was one of the more interesting subplots of Suisse, especially after he won the time trial, which proved that he wasn't out of shape, like everyone was saying. Um, I, I did see like, oh, the heat's bothering him. Well, guys, if the it's the same thing with Simon Yates. If the heat's an issue now, like how is the Volta Spagna gonna work? <laughs> it gets really hot at the Volta. It's in Spain in August. So um if if the heat in Switzerland in June was a problem. Um, you might as well just not go to the Volta because that's not going to be any cooler than it was at the Tour of Switzerland. So I don't think it was the heat. I, I don't think it was fitness. I think he just, you know, at least at this point in his career, is not a great, you know, alpine climber, at least in race situations. So um, something to keep an eye on as we get closer to that Volta where I suspect he will be like touted as a major favorite. All right, so Tadej Pogacar won the Tour of Slovenia. Um, he didn't win it by much. I think it was like 12 second gap. There wasn't really any huge climbs here. So, you know, one takeaway would be like on the final stage, there was a two kilometer climb, pretty steep, 10K from the finish. He can't drop Matty Modric. His teammate Rafa Mika bridges up to them on the descent. They go to the finish together. Um, Pogacar screws up like the lead into the sprint, but still just like overcomes a massive gap to beat Matty Modric in the sprint. One read on that would be like, whoa, whoa, Pogacar can't drop Motorich. What's what's wrong with him? But on a two-kilometer climb, I mean, even this whole Tour of Slovenia course, not really laid out for someone like Pogacar. Like, these aren't long climbs. I don't think there was a time trial. Um, the fact that he won it shows to me that he's on incredible form. Um, we're, you know, we're only a few years removed from from riders like Chris Froome being like, oh, I can't, the climb's not tough enough. I mean, I can't, like, if you remember all of Chris Froome one day wins, you know, th there weren't any, you know, he couldn't win on explosive courses like this. And, and it's, it's not uncommon. I mean, think about like even Joe Jombrowski recently, you know, I think as recently as last year was like, well, if it's a 10 K climb, that's, that's too explosive for me. I'm a, I'm a real climber. I need big Alpine passes. Well, Pogacar is better than you on Alpine passes, and it can just drop everyone on a 2K climb, which is essentially like a one-day classic climb that you might see at the Tour of Flanders. So super impressive that he could just dominate and win at will on these explosive courses, as well as being the best in the world on difficult climbs and time trials. So I think we left Slovenia thinking... You know, the only the only thing I can nitpick here is so he just spent a week, you know, we're a week out from the tour, essentially, and he just spent a week not at elevation. That makes me a little nervous. You know, I, I would bet I'd bet you a lot of money. Roglic is probably tucked away up in the Alps doing an altitude training camp, which is like the best thing you can do before a grand tour. So, you know, I, I know I said this last year and then Pogacar put like minutes in everyone by stage seven. but. I don't love the leaving of the training camp to go do a race um, without super long alpine climbs. Like not, probably not the best thing to do on paper. I, I know we just did a high altitude, big time training camp. So he got, he got plenty of training in, but I don't love the low altitude stint at this point. But if, if you're smart, if you're a rival and you watch this race, you're walking away with thinking, God, this, I don't know if this guy has any weaknesses because he can win sprint stages or at least like, win stages from sprints against budding classic stars like Matty Motorich, and he can climb better than everyone and time trial better than everyone. So how exactly do you beat him? Um, you know, we saw at Dauphin, at the Dauphin du Dauphiné where Primoz Roglic might not be on like the pre-tour form that we've seen in recent years. I don't know if this is a, this could be a strategy though, where, you know, he's really struggled in the third week of Grand Tours throughout his career at times. So perhaps they're trying to get a slower lead in and, and trying to have him peak in the second or third week. 
Uh, but one thing that really jumped out to me at Dauphiné, I talked about this last week, is just how good Jonas Vingegaard was. You know, potentially this could present a problem for Tadej Pogacar because Jonas Vingegaard is one of the few riders in the world to be able to climb, you know, with or even better than Roglic at sometimes. At, at times during that Dauphiné, it looked like he was pulling Roglic along in the mountains. And he didn't have a great time trial at Dauphiné, but we saw last year in the tour, I mean, he beat Pogacar in a time trial. So he's very, very good. And then the next level of questions for me would be, well, does Vingegaard have like the mentality of a champion? Is he robust, mentally robust enough to actually win a tour? That second place last year was impressive, but it kind of came to him. He didn't come in as a leader. Roglic crashed out. He just kind of had to take it day by day. A lot of times he didn't even have team support because the team would just go in a breakaway and leave him. Um, maybe that didn't put, you know, there's probably not a ton of pressure on him from that. So, you know, when the eyes are on him, can he perform? Uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, I wouldn't bet against Pogacar, but it's just something to think about. There's very few riders in the world who are as good as at climbing and time trialing as Jonas Vindegaard. So anyone can challenge Pogacar. He's potentially one of them. Um, also just FD, Groupama FDJ. I, what is going on at that team? Um, they have Arno Demar, who we saw at the Giro, is p- potentially the best sprinter in the world, at least one of the best sprinters in the world, could probably challenge for a green jersey one at the Tour. He's not going to the Tour because they're going all in for Thibaut Pino, who is going for, they're saying stages, but if they were really just interested in stage wins, you think Demar would be the obvious solution there, as opposed to Pino, who potentially is not good enough to win on mountain stages and not fast enough to win on easier stages. You think. He's probably going to try to target the GC. Um, we saw at the Tour of the Alps and the recent Tour de Suisse that he, he won stages in both, which is, ho- which is tough to do, but he was not able to contest the GC at them, which if he can't contest the GC at Tour of the Alps or Tour de Suisse, you probably can't do it at the Tour de France. So this to me is like careening towards disaster. I have no idea why they're, what, what is going on with the strategy. I almost guarantee you Pino will get dropped, um, probably won't finish the race. It will probably be very sad. We'll talk about it for a long time. He'll cry. The commentators will cry. We'll talk about, wow, the tragedy of Thibaut Pino. But if that happens, I mean, FDJ has no one to blame but themselves. Like, we've seen this movie before. He, he has not been a robust Grand Tour rider since basically the 2018 Giro d'Italia when he just fell apart in the final week after riding high in the GC. So I'm confused by the strategy. I have no idea why they're doing it. I would just go all in for DeMar, at least in the sprints and, and for the green jersey. Take David Goodell, take Thibaut Pino to contest difficult stages, but do not count on them for the GC. This is like this is a disaster waiting to happen, especially on in France, where the media attention is going to be so intense on them. I'm just a little baffled by the decision. And then I want to talk a little bit. I sent out a newsletter yesterday breaking down Kristen Faulkner's um, second place ride at Tour de Switzerland. She got beat by Lucinda Brand on the final day. Pretty thrilling stuff. A lot of the men's races recently, I've been enjoying watching them because I'm a cycling fanatic and I liked seeing where riders are physically before bigger races like the Tour de France. I cannot imagine these are interesting to average fans because there's just no good riders do not race against each other, essentially. Um, Pogacar and Roglic haven't raced a stage race against each other all year. The Tour will be the first time. But what happens if one of them crashes out like two days in? You know, it's just ridiculous all these like there was four races going on over the weekend and the stars were all spread amongst those four races it just seems like that's not a tenable entertainment product like you can't expect people to watch what are essentially televised training rides there's no stakes at any of these races because there's no 
critical mass of stars or good riders racing each other. You know, Garrett Thomas was always going to win Tour Switzerland, basically from Friday forward. You could just have skipped that race. You didn't need to watch it. You know, Tad, it was fun to watch Tade Pogaccio destroy people at Slovenia, but that wasn't required viewing either. So it just seems like a major problem when significant events on your calendar are completely skippable because the big riders just all splinter off and go to different races that run at the same time and, and no one can feasibly watch all these races. So people just won't watch them. But what was exciting at, about the Tour de Switzerland Women's Edition was it was actually really, really exciting races. Like racing, you had um, Jolinda Neff, who's Olympic mountain bike champion, um, really ripping the race apart, heading into the final climb and the final stage. Lucinda Brand was second overall in the GC, definitely not as strong as Kristen Faulkner, who was leading the race on that final day. But where things got really interesting is Brand is just a much more experienced racer than Faulkner, who was on this podcast, um, I believe that was last year, in her first professional year. I mean, she's like not that far removed from learning how to race in Central Park in New York City when she had a full-time job. So she's like very new to the sport. I'll put a link to that interview in the show notes here so you can go back and listen to it if you want. But a major thing Faulkner has going for her is her engine is just so much bigger than a lot of other riders. I mean, she, she averaged like 324 watts on the final climb at a much lighter weight than a lot of the male riders. So, I mean, that's like serious, serious watts per kilos. So, she, you know, Brand knew, knew that she wasn't as strong as her, needed to make up time. She got 26 time bonus seconds over the course of the four days. Faulkner got seven, I believe. You know, that's significant, especially when we consider they're only separated by four seconds heading into the final day. But um, just to, to kind of briefly discuss this, Brand knew that she had to get a gap before the final climb because Faulkner would, would, would have dropped her if they would have gone to the final climb together. She uses Yolinda Neff to rip off the front on like a little descent, uh, twisty, like a twisty semi-descent heading into the final climb. Gets a pretty big gap, like it's like a 44 second gap at one point heading into the climb. And that's enough because it means Faulkner put in an amazing ride, like really mowed her down over the course of just a few kilometers, catches her with like 1.4K to go. But, you know, Brand timed it perfectly because that's when the climb got a little bit easier. All she has to do at that point, because she picked up time bonuses during the stage, was to beat Faulkner. So all she has to do is finish in front of Faulkner because the delta between first and second is six seconds, no, sorry, four seconds in time bonuses. So um, she just has to sit on her wheel and beat her in a sprint. And then the onus is on Faulkner to drop her or beat her in the sprint, which is going to be tougher to do because when they got to the sprint, it was a, a really tricky uphill finish, um, like a steep, sharp turn, left turn heading into the finish. Faulkner, you know, I don't know if she didn't know if the, the if it was going to turn or what. She, she was definitely on the wrong side of the road. Uh, maybe she just didn't know that she needed to get on the other side of the road to like hit the hit the apex like branded but she goes into the turn completely on the on the left she's on the inside line so she uh crashes because it's rainy and slick and it's almost impossible to to make a turn going at any sort of speed when you're on the inside heading into it brand popped like pot past her just the right time like 150 meters to go goes to the right side really breezes through the apex of that turn Finishes 15 seconds in front of Faulkner because um, she spent time crashing and then getting back up and wins the overall by 17 seconds. Really a thrilling final climb. Um, and, and I thought just an amazing piece of strategy by Lucinda Brand. But one thing I wanted to point out about this is it shows 
why teams are so important. Um, Faulkner was was pretty much isolated heading into that final climb. If she has a stronger team with her, they can pull back the Brand move, start Faulkner on the climb at the same time as Brand. Faulkner puts in that performance, and instead of catching Brand, you're dropping Brand and wins the overall. So, you know, this is this is what got Chris Froome like his first few tour wins. He wasn't a super skilled rider; he just had a lot of physical skill, and the team would would you know, ferry him around and get him where he needed to go so he could start climbs equal with the other GC contenders. And this is a perfect example of what happens if you don't have that and how you can beat a stronger rider, you know, by A, if they don't have a strong team and B, you're maybe a more skilled, experienced racer than that person. Um, it was just like an interesting little clinic, I thought. And it had, you know, such, such high stakes, like that final climb, anything felt like it could have happened. Versus a lot of the men's racing rates recently, which you know hasn't felt that same way. All right, well, I'll be back next week with a pre-Tour de France show. I think um, Andrew Vance, who's been doing shows with me uh, recently and mainly during the Giro d'Italia, me and him are uh, potentially going to launch like our own separate product. It will be on this feed, though, for the tour, so you won't be able to miss that. All right, well, thank you, and I'll see you next week.